It is really good to be with all of you this morning, and uh, again, my name is John, and I'm the director here, and uh, want to just send, extend a welcome to any uh, guests or visitors that are joining us today. We hope that for every single one of you, every week when you're here, you feel loved and welcomed and encouraged, uh, that when you're here, you're a part of our family, uh, and that you're feeling uh, connected. As Andy mentioned, we're, we're continuing uh, through the story, uh, our series of preaching through these 31 powerful stories uh, of the Bible. If you haven't got one of these yet, it's not too late to jump in. We're still in the Old Testament. We're still early on in the story, so you can jump in uh, and grab one of these Bibles uh, from the back. We would love to uh, get you connected, one of those. And also, flip over your bullets, and I just want to point that out. Uh, again, we hope that the only time that you crack open the Bible isn't just now, uh, on Sundays. On the back of your bulletin, there's a Bible reading plan, and uh, there's two different tracks. You can be reading through the story, or you can read the, the corresponding scriptures. And so we want to encourage you to be doing that, and also do that as a family, uh, too, is one of the best ways that you can grow uh, together in God's Word uh, as a family. So uh, growing up, uh, did anybody, you, you took vacations, right? You went places with your family? Yeah, I'm seeing a few nods. Three of you took vacations. Good. Okay. So you'll relate to this then. Um, so growing up, uh, when we went on uh, family vacation, we would uh, pack up uh, none other than the family station wagon. Do you remember station wagons? Does anybody have a station wagon? You know what I'm talking about? Yeah, that's right, right? Rock in the early 80s. So uh, we would go and uh, we'd pack up uh, the, the Subaru. We had a Subaru station wagon. One of them was brown, uh, basically the color of mud, very appealing. And the other one was blue, and we called it the blue bullet. There was nothing sporty or bullety about it. But that was our, our family car. So uh, all of you that have taken family vacations, especially parents, know that on the, the, the outset of the family vacation, it's really exciting, right? When you're getting ready to go on a trip, uh, when, you're, when you're heading out, uh, spirits are high, and it's very exciting, and you can't wait to be on the road. But then after several hours of driving and it's getting warm and people are making weird noises in the back of the car and they're getting uh, annoying and you can't agree on the temperature and you can't agree on what to listen to on the radio and you haven't reached your destination, especially when you have small children in the car, inevitably at some point the question is going to come ringing from the back seat. Can you guess it? Are we there yet, right? Uh, yeah, you've been there before too. Are we there yet? And if we're honest, I think that maybe some of us as adults have felt that too because we really want to get the kids out of the car uh, and we are ready to get to our destination. But I think if we're honest that we find ourselves asking that question to ourselves not just in the car but on the journey of life as well. In fact, if you wanted to, to sum up uh, this chapter, the chapter six that we're going to be diving into in the story today called Wandering, it would be this question. God's people, the Israelites, are asking God the question, are we there yet? Are we there yet? In one way, shape, or form, again and again and again, are we there yet? And if you remember, this road trip started out with a lot of excitement as well. I mean, this is even more excited than going, exciting than going to Disney World. God tells his people that they are going to go to the promised land. Back in Exodus chapter 3, God says this to his people. I have promised to bring you up out of your misery in Egypt into a land flowing with milk and honey. 
Some of you are like, I don't really like milk or honey. I don't know if I'd want that. But this is the promised land. Promise land. God is saying, I'm going to take you out of the wilderness, out of the desert where you are, where things really can't grow. And I'm going to put you in a place where your people are going to grow in number, where your nation is going to grow, where your farming uh, will, will be fruitful, and you'll have an abundance of food. You don't have to worry about your enemies anymore. And all will be well again. And so we know that the story that we've been learning the last couple of weeks, God leads his people out of Egypt, right? And they're, and they're headed out and they escape uh, Pharaoh's army. And to top it all off, we read in the story this week, God gives them the world's largest flashlight. He says, I'm going to lead you by a, a pillar of fire at night, right? You can probably see a, a long ways uh, with that. And so at this point, if you're an Israelite, you're feeling pretty good, Right? No more slavery, no more Pharaoh, and the promised land should be just around the corner. Just a short trip, right? Or if you're a Gilligan's Island fan, just a three-hour three tour, right? Shouldn't take too long at all. If only that were the case. In fact, over the next 40 years, in fact, the majority of the Old Testament is a result of God's people ending up taking one of the world's longest road trips to the promised land. Because, here's the deal, when God gives this promise to Moses that I'm going to lead you and I'm going to lead your people into the promised land, and when he gives promises to us, we often forget about the land in between. For the Israelites, it was a, a massive wilderness. It was, it was a desert. But I wonder this morning, and this is where I want to start, what does that look like for you? Have you ever had a desert experience in your life? Have you ever had a wilderness-type experience? Like today, maybe you're somewhere between where you started and where you want to get to. I was thinking about this because in, in its simplest form, all of us, in one way, shape, or form, are on a journey, and we're trying to figure out how we get from here to there. It took me all week to come up with that, by the way. I know, I know. You can thank me later for my wisdom. So we're all trying to get from here to there, or if you want to put it this way, from our now to our not yet. Do you have any not yets in your life? Do you have some things you're saying, God, God's maybe just saying not yet, and you're just living there in the middle? Or, thank you, yeah, for the sake of our story today, it looks like Egypt to the promised land. That's the journey that the Israelites are on. And just like small kids, we spend most of our lives wondering in this journey of life, we spend most of our lives wondering, are we there yet? Have we arrived? When do I get to my destination? But when we're honest, we don't spend most of our lives here or there. We spend most of our lives here. And what today we'll call the land between. But 
we're all in this one way or another, whether you want to call it the wilderness or, or the desert or this, this journey, this experience of life, whatever you want to call it, we're all in it one way or another. Because for you today, you're might saying, I'm not going from Egypt to the promised land, but I'm, I'm definitely on a journey. For some of you, that land in between is the daily grind, just getting through another week of work. Maybe your land between is from this job to that job, from no relationship to that relationship you've always been looking for. Maybe for you, that land in between is from diagnosis to healing, from uncertainty to certainty, with no end in sight. On a lighter note, if you're like me, uh, as a Cubs fan, uh, your here is clearly 1908. And 104 years later, we're still living in the land in between, right? For me, this is 1908, and this is World Series, okay? We haven't quite made it there yet. We know what it's like to live in the land between, which means we've been in the desert for 104 years, if you're keeping track. That's longer than the Israelites were in the desert. And yet, for some of you, you're looking at that and you're saying, John, I know exactly what you mean because I have been waiting for my promised land for what seems like forever, too. Because for some of you today, you're sitting here and you thought, well, I'm just going to come and it's just going to be a, a normal service and I'm glad I made it here and didn't hit any marathon runners on my way. And now I'm here and I'll put in my time and I'll sing the songs and I'll listen to the sermon and I'll go home. But this story might have much more to do with your life than you think. Because for some of you, your promised land is that addiction that you just can't break on your own. For some of you, that promised land is just desiring to have that child and it just hasn't worked out yet. For some of you, the promised land is recapturing that intimacy that you once had with your spouse. It's gotten lost somewhere along the way in the busyness of life. For some of us, it's that closeness, that relationship that you once had with God. That we were on, we were on the mountaintop and, and, and we were full and, and we were very healthy in a spiritual sense, but somewhere along the way in the desert, things kind of dried up. And if you said, I, John, if I had to describe my heart today, it's like the desert. It's dried up. There's not a lot of life there. And maybe that explains where you're at today. You're just not feeling it. But wherever you are on your journey, the good news today is that what God promises to the Israelites is that what he promises to us is, I will not leave you. I will lead you by a cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night is what he tells God's people in our story today. The land in between is a familiar place for all of us and every single one of us can say, I'm there <laughs> or I'm there or I'm there. Every single one of us can probably say today, I'm a little bit farther this way or that way, depending on what's going on in your life. We are all just like the Israelites on this journey. We're all in it together. 
And so if you're wondering if you're all alone here today, you're not. So just take a second, look at the person next to you if you have to scoot over a couple chairs and just go, hey, we're in this together. Just look them right in the eyes. Just give them a little elbow. Say, hey, we're in this together. Say it like you mean it. So this desert, this, this land in between is uh, rather fitting today because that's right where God's people find themselves. If you've got your Bibles, open up to Exodus chapter 13, and we're going to start just a little bit before our story today. If you're in the story Bible, something that you might have noticed is that there's not chapters or verses, as in the Bibles that are in your rows. So this might jump from Numbers to Deuteronomy to Exodus within a paragraph, right? They're just not going to tell you because it's one cohesive story. But if you've got your Bibles from the rows, uh, Exodus chapter 13, verse 17. So back in chapter 5 in the story, God gives us, we, we get some good context about what is going on. And we start in verse 17. When Pharaoh finally let the people go, God did not lead them along the main road that runs through the Philistine territory, even though that was the shortest route to the promised land. God said if the people are faced with a battle, they might change their minds and return to Egypt. Verse 18, so God led them in a roundabout way through the wilderness towards the Red Sea. You ever been on a roundabout? They're kind of confusing, aren't they? Did you know that it was God's idea? He set one up in the middle of the desert. But what exactly, uh, that's exactly what they do. The, the Israelites don't go on a straight path. They go in a roundabout way. And nobody, nobody knows more about roundabouts than our good friend, Clark W. Griswold. And he takes his family vacation to Europe and he has a run-in with European roundabouts. Let's take a look. <laughs> What I love about that in the end is that he finally says, I can't get it. I can't figure it out. I can't get left no matter how hard I try. And funny enough, when we look at a map of how the Israelites went, they really couldn't get left. Okay, take a look. This is a map of the way that the Israelites took. So the red line is their journey. Okay, you'll notice on the left side, you'll see that's Egypt. Okay, on that side of the peninsula. Okay. And you're looking at the route that they took, it doesn't seem too difficult, and they need to get to Jerusalem, to the promised land, in that area over on the right side of the screen. Really, all they would have to do is just travel right there along the Mediterranean Sea. But instead, like Clark Griswold, they get on this roundabout, and they just keep going right, and they keep going right, and they keep going right. And I have to imagine at some point, Moses looks at the people and goes, people, we got to go left. I can't go left. And he's crying and he, and he can't figure it out. You'd think they would just follow the coast of the Mediterranean Sea, but somehow that journey, which is only approximately about 300 miles, took 40 years. Guys, even when we get lost, right, this is much worse than that, right? It should not take you that long. That's like seven or eight miles a year. You should be able to do that walking. Think about that for a second. Something is terribly wrong here when you look at that picture. But when you take a step back and look at this story, you maybe get, start to get thinking, maybe speed 
wasn't God's number one priority. Maybe on our journeys from here to there, from our nows to our not yets in life, maybe God's number one priority for us isn't how fast we get to where we think we want to go, as it was with the Israelites. Maybe God's number one priority, his number one desire is something much different. As we learned last week, as Pastor Laura talked about the Ten Commandments, God gives us this command. Number one, don't have any other gods before me. In other words, God says, my relationship with you, not your comfort level, not the speed at which you get there, not getting everything that you want, my number one priority is my relationship with you. And you understanding that you cannot find life any other way. But instead of trusting the Israel, instead of trusting God's heart, the Israelites turn away and they can't get left. They keep going right. And so we read on page 64 uh, of uh, the story. Uh, if you're there, we're just in the in the second uh, uh, well, the last chapter back, and this is in Exodus 32, verse 7. If you have the Bibles. In the rows. So this is just one chapter before. And we read from the story. They're in the middle of the wilderness, and then the Lord said to Moses, Go down because your people who you brought out of Egypt have become corrupt. They have been quick to turn away from what I commanded them and have made themselves an idol cast in the shape of a calf. They have bowed down to it. And sacrificed to it and have said, these are your gods, Israel, who brought you up out of Egypt. That quickly, that quickly, they've sold out on God and said, no, uh, Yahweh, it wasn't you that brought us out of Egypt. We're going to pretend that this golden calf was our savior, was our Messiah. And so what do you do as a good parent when the children that you love disobey you? Do you say, oh, that's fine, do whatever you want? No, like any good parent, there's discipline. God disciplines the ones he loves. There's consequences for their actions. There's consequences for ours. So instead of the direct route, God says, I'm going to do whatever it takes. I'm going to do whatever it takes, even if that means providing food for you, food from heaven called manna every single day, and deliver it to you, not more than you can handle, but just enough for today. I'm going to do whatever it takes to help you understand that you will never be able to make this journey alone, and that I am everything that you need. God says, I don't care how long it takes, even if it takes 40 years of wandering in the wilderness. I want you to understand in the depths of your being, there is nowhere else to find life apart from me. Yet unfortunately for the Israelites, their rebellion and their refusal to let God lead resulted in the detour of a lifetime. You ever been on a detour? You know how frustrating that can be, right? You know your destination is there. Right? I was going somewhere this week and I took a detour and then I think I took a detour on the detour to get back to the detour to get to where I wanted to go, right? It, yeah. <laughs> I took a detour to get to the detour from the detour. That's what I said, right? There, there you go. 
And you've all been on these and you know how frustrating it is. And sometimes in life, we can take our own wrong turns as well. And other times they happen to us. So how about you? Has life ever taken a detour? Do you ever feel like you were, you were going along in life and everything was going great and then all of a sudden you took a sharp left or a sharp right? Maybe you've experienced a lot of them. You thought you knew where things were headed and then a relationship fails. And then you lose the job. It's that divorce that was never supposed to happen. A family member gets sick or even dies. It's in those moments very similar to the Israelites in the desert, we start to ask the question, God, what happened? Did I, did I miss a turn somewhere? Have I been on the roundabout for too long? God, did, did, did I miss something? Does God really know what he's doing? And it's easy for us to ask those questions, which is exactly where we find the Israelites in our scripture today. So now you can hop on over to Numbers 14, or if you're in the story, it's on page 76. And the Israelites are struggling with their constant detours. God's people have been weary and they have no problem, no problem letting God know exactly <laughs> what they think, how quickly their freedom is turned to complaining. This is what Kathy read for us earlier. That night, all the members of the community raised their voices and wept out loud. All the Israelites grumbled against Moses and Aaron, and the whole assembly said to them, If only we had died in Egypt or in this wilderness. Why is the Lord bringing us out, of, out to this land only to let us fall by the sword? Our wives and children will be taken as plunder. Wouldn't it be better for us to go back to Egypt? And they said to each other, we should choose a leader and then go back. Think about what they're saying. For hundreds of years, they were in chains. They were in shackles. And now they're saying bondage would be better than the mystery and the unknown. Think about that. Think about sometimes when we start complaining and we start worrying about where life is headed. We often say that. God, you know it would be better if I just didn't have to follow you because then maybe life wouldn't be so unpredictable. And then where would we be? And we wonder, does God know what he's doing? That's a question that we all ask when we get impatient on a trip. Essentially, you know, Numbers 14, what God's people are saying is what you hear from the back seat, the famous question, are we there yet? They keep asking that over and over and over again. But here's the thing. Whenever we're faced with detours in life, I think we can end up falling into one of two ditches. And I think God wants us in the middle. On one hand, if you, if you think about it, one, one danger, one ditch on this hand is that we simply say, well, when things aren't going my way, well, God, why don't you just come and fix it? God, can't you just come and make it all better? Can't you just kind of swoop in like Superman and save the day? Or even we say something like, you know, maybe if I just had a little bit more faith, then God would fix everything. Maybe if I was better, maybe if I read my Bible more, maybe if I was more spiritual, then God would give me everything I want. But I'm afraid that's not what we see 
in Scripture. That's not the God that we have. In fact, we hear in Scripture that the rain falls on the righteous and on the unrighteous. There's no difference. Calamity comes to us all. Jesus even says to us, in this world, you will have trouble. In this world, Jesus says, you will have desert in between seasons of your life. So that's one ditch, and we just say, well, God, why don't you fix it? Or maybe if I tried a little bit harder. On the other hand, that's one ditch, but on the other extreme, we find ourselves saying, well, if God can't come and fix it, well, then maybe there's just no answers at all. Maybe that's you today. Maybe you're sitting there and saying, well, if God's not going to fix it, then maybe there's no hope. Maybe, there's, maybe I'll just give up trying because life is just too confusing. But that's not what we see in God's word either. You say, oh, maybe there's no answers. There are answers. Jesus Christ looks at every single one of us today and says, I have come that you might have life and have it abundantly. And that starts today. When Jesus spoke about the kingdom and when he spoke about eternal life, it wasn't some life somewhere in the clouds someday. It was right now, here, today. Eternal life was just as much about a quality of life now as a quantity of life later. And so when we say, oh, on our wilderness journey, I guess we'll just forget it. Just forget it all because there are no answers. There are answers. And his name is Jesus Christ. And he says today, I am the way, I am the truth, and I am the life. And that starts today. How do we know there's hope? How do we know there's joy? How do we know that there's restoration in this life? It's because there's people sitting around you today that are fighting cancer. And they have more hope in their life than a lot of people in this world that have everything. There's people sitting around you today that really have nothing. And you have more joy than people in this world that have everything. There is peace and there is joy and there is hope right now for you here today. I don't know about you, but I want a God for today, don't you? He's a God for today, and he's a God for eternity. But it starts right now here today. So, so don't go in either one of those ditches. Stay right down the middle. So this God comes to the Israelites, and he comes to us today, and he says, don't think just because you can't feel me at certain places of the journey doesn't mean I'm not there. Doesn't mean I'm not working. I wonder if God says to the Israelites as they're crying out to him and what he says to us today is you have no idea how close I really am to you. I am closer to you today than you could ever imagine. When we're ready to give up, when we're ready to throw in the towel, he says, if only you knew how close I really was to you. And no one should know that better when you think about it than Moses himself. You want to think about how this journey started? You remember back at the beginning of the book of Exodus, God shows up to Moses how? In a burning bush, right? Of all things. That's pretty random if you think. But where was Moses when the burning bush appeared to him? In the desert. Moses was off in his own land in between, in his wilderness. That's where God found him. 
In fact, I did a little research this week, and it, Jewish scholars had this debate for years and years, hundreds of years, and they're still debating to this day. Why would God choose to show up to Moses in a burning bush? If this is your leader, if this is the main guy, why not make it more extravagant? Why not have like an earthquake or a big thunderclap or a lightning bolt or something like that and have this big booming voice and have the whole heavens part and everything like that? Why wouldn't God show up in in, in a big, crazy way like that, a little bit more impressive? And why would God show up to Moses on the far side of the desert? Just a forgotten, an ordinary place. Somewhere that seemed like the middle of nowhere. Well, what these scholars concluded, I I love this, they concluded that the bush was God's way of saying, nowhere is where I am. (laughs) In fact, I'm everywhere. It was God's way of saying, if I can show up to Moses on the far side of the desert and show up in a burning bush, then I can show up anywhere. And because of this, they got, they gave, got, one of the names they gave to God was Hebrew meaning the place. So Moses, the leader of the Israelite journey through the desert, starts his journey by experiencing a God in his own desert a God who's known as the place. Meaning God is here, God is there, God is everywhere. Meaning right in the middle of the desert, right in the middle of your wilderness, God says, I'm already there. And the ground where you are standing, Moses, is holy. I wonder if God's saying to us today, Don't wait till you reach the promised land to start worshiping me because the ground you're standing on right now is holy. And the God who says, I am the place, says, I am with you every single step of the way. I am there. So wherever you find yourself on your journey today, we encounter a God who says, I am the place. We encounter a God who says, I am with you in your car when you're driving home from work on Friday and you are so irritated at your boss that you just want to scream. God says, I'm there. God says, I am with you when you are alone in your home at night and you are so lonely because you realize I don't have any friends to call. And God, the place, says, I'm there. God says, I am with you in right in the middle of your kitchen when you're having one of those knockdown, drag-out arguments with your spouse and you're too ashamed to share it with your life group. God says, I'm there. I'm there before you were. God says, I am with you in what seems like some of the most ordinary places and ordinary days of your life. And God says, that place is holy. Why? Because I'm already there. So take off your sandals, Moses, because the ground you're standing on is holy and worship me now. Not when things get better, not when things are different. Now, because God says, I am here. I spent uh, my whole life pretty much 
in Iowa. And I was thinking about this. I was thinking about this experience. And I think a few years back, I don't, correct me if I'm wrong here, but several years back, you know when you drive, usually it's Minnesota to Iowa is where I'm going up and down the interstate. You know the sign that welcomes you to Iowa, right? I think right now it's like fields of opportunities or something like that. It used to be the slogan, a place to grow, right? Remember that? Iowa, place to grow, right? Cornfields and pigs, because that's what Iowa is, right? Anyway, imagine if you were driving to Arizona and you were driving and right into the desert and all you could see was just desert. There was no life anywhere, okay? Imagine if you drove up and you saw a big sign that says, welcome to the desert, a place to grow. You'd think, no, that's stupid, right? That's silly. Nothing can grow here. Nothing grows in the desert. But what if I told you today that lots of things grow in the desert? Not just cactuses, but a lot of things. Because I want to tell you today that I believe that the desert is fertile ground. The desert is fertile ground for one of two things. Bitterness or transformation. Wherever you're at on your journey, bitterness or transformation, we usually end up going one of two ways. We've already seen it with the Israelites. They've gone down this path of complain, 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 navel-gazing, woe is us, and it's leading to bitterness. It's leading to anger and hatred toward God. And that's deadly. And maybe that's you today. Let's just be honest, right? It can be a startling reality, though, when we wake up and wake up one day and realize God doesn't owe you anything. I know that's a harsh reality, but think about that for a second. God doesn't owe you anything because he's God. He's not a wimp. He's not a pushover. He's not a vending machine. He's God. And he doesn't owe you anything. But that same God comes to the Israelites and comes to us and says, oh, but I want to give you everything. I want to give you so much more than you could ever ask for or imagine. In fact, later on in this story, I'm going to give you myself. I'm going to give my life for yours. And maybe you're feeling a little bit like Moses did today and you're thinking, I'd just rather complain. I'd just rather moan and grumble about it. But the desert is also fertile ground, not just for bitterness, but for transformation. And nothing could be truer of Moses' life. And so we hop back into the story today. You can read it in Deuteronomy 34, or it's on page 88 of the story. It's towards the end of our chapter for today. Moses has reached the end of his journey. They've been traveling for almost 40 years, and Moses is kind of giving his sayonara speech. This is his last lecture. This is his final talk to the Israelites. And as I read this, I want you to listen to Moses' heart now versus the bitterness that it used to be. And so Moses says this in Deuteronomy chapter 34. So Moses is up. He's in front of the Israelites. And first of all, I don't know if you know this, but Moses never made it. Moses never made it 
to the promised land. And so he's going along and, excuse me, it's on page 85. And Moses is standing up in front of the people. And he's thinking, what is the most important thing I could say? And he says this. Remember how the Lord your God led you all the way into the wilderness these 40 years? Listen to this. To humble and test you in order to know what is in your heart. Whether or not you would keep his commands. He humbled you, causing you to hunger and then feeding you with manna, which neither you nor your ancestors had known to teach you that man does not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of the Lord. Does that sound like a bitter man to you? Sounds like a transformed man to me. After all these years of wandering, Moses gives us some very a vital perspective on our journeys as well. Not only was Moses able to look back when he stepped back from his life and saw the big picture, Moses was able to see a God who showed up again and again and again and provided in ways that only God knew when and how to do, not just what Moses wanted. But he also provided Moses with something far greater than bread. He provided him with a relationship. That he, he spoke into Moses' life and, and poured into Moses all these years so that Moses would know he didn't have to go anywhere else and rely on anyone else. For Moses, his transformation was from bitterness to trust. And I think that God looks at us today and says, I want to take you on that journey as well. He learned that God's heart for him was good. And it's no wonder that later on in the story, there's this beautiful passage in Deuteronomy 1, verse 31. And this is at the end of this whole story. And it says, And there in the desert, there you saw how the Lord your God carried you as a father all the way till you reached that place. As a father. Because that was God's promise all along. Not that it would be easy, but that he would bring you home. And nobody knows that better than Derek Redmond. You see, I thought because today was marathon day, we would end with a little track story, if that's okay with you, just to get your running flavor on today. With a little Olympic flashback. The year was 1992. Do you remember where you were in 1992? Well, there you go. The Barcelona Olympics were going on, and Derek Redmond was one of uh, England, one of Great Britain's best 400-meter runners ever, ever. And he was picked to win. And so the, the time finally came for the final race at the Olympic Stadium, and everybody was chanting his name, Derek, Derek, Derek. And he's there on the track. And everybody expects him to win. He's just going to blow away the competition. And this is going to be the pinnacle. The crowning achievement of his life is passing the finish line because he had earned it. Because this is exactly the finish line that he had in mind. But as you watch this clip, we're going to discover that God had something much different in mind for how Derek was going to finish the race that day. Let's take a look. And there in the desert, you saw how the Lord carried you as a father. You see, as he neared the finish line, can you imagine the disappointment that Derek must have felt? 
not getting to his promised land, not getting to his destination the way that he had always envisioned, but instead the way that he end up finish, ended up finishing was in the arms of his dad, who shoved the security guard aside and comes running onto the track to meet him. And so at the end of this story, Moses is at the top of the mountain and he's overlooking the promised land. And God says, you're not going to enter. Joshua's going to take him in. So you can just rest now because you've run the race and you finished. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I think we probably feel like Moses did at the end of his journey. Maybe today you're feeling like Derek did at the end of his journey. I've failed. I've made too many mistakes. I've screwed it up. God, this life, this journey that I've been on, it hasn't gone at all the way I thought it would. I pulled a hamstring in the Olympics, for pity's sakes. I've taken too many detours, and I, I want you to hear what is said about Moses at the very end of our chapter, at the end of chapter 6, this is what is said about Moses. Deuteronomy 34, 10. Since then, no prophet has risen in Israel like Moses, whom the Lord knew face to face. Oh, if that was said of us. You should know that when Derek's dad ran up to him and they looked at each other face to face, his dad said to Derek, you don't have to do this. You don't have anything to prove to anybody. And Derek looked right at his dad. He said, I have to finish this race. And then with tears in his eyes, his dad looked at him in the eyes and says, well, then we'll finish together. And that's what your dad, your heavenly father says to you today. You can rest easy because you may not cross the finish line in the way in this life that you think you're going to. But one day when all is said and done, just like me and Moses, the most important thing and the only thing that will last in this life is not how much you accumulated along the way, but the relationships that you invested in along the way. And most importantly, that you knew the Lord your God face to face. That's victory. That's eternal life. Hear this today. The wasteland is never wasted. Let's stand and pray.